Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good day, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, if you've been listening to the program in the past couple of weeks, you will have noticed clearly that we have placed an emphasis right now on underwater archaeology. In, sp- in particular, we have discussed underwater archaeology in connection with uh, recent work in Egypt and the Red Sea, in which uh, ancient ships of the ancient Egyptians were reconstructed based on a variety of different technological and historical records that were recovered from the Egyptian uh, hieroglyphic record and from the archaeological record together. Today's topic is a little bit different. We're going to go all the way across the world to uh, the South Pacific and to Australia, and we will be speaking about maritime archaeology in that part of the world with one of its most distinguished researchers, uh, Dr. Mark Staniford. Uh, Mark Staniforth is an adjunct professor at La Trobe University and adjunct senior research fellow at Menashe University in Melbourne, Australia. He's received his master's in history from the University of Sydney in 1993 and his PhD from Flinders University in Adelaide in 1999. Uh, Mark has extensive experience in historical archaeology, maritime archaeology, museum and heritage studies over a a 30-year career. He's the author of numerous articles as well as books, including Material Culture and Consumer Society in 2003. Uh, Dr. Staniforth is an elected fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of, of London and a member of two international scientific committees of International Council of Monuments and Sites. And he is currently a member of the Bakdang and Van Don Battlefield Research Project as well as one of the three principal investigators for the Australian Historic Shipwork, Shipwreck and Protection Project. Uh, Dr. Staniforth, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thanks, Joe. Hello. Yes, good to hear from you. So let me start by asking you, uh, because we have discussed maritime archaeology with some of our American colleagues and the people we're, we're used to working with here in the North America. How does one get into maritime archaeology in, in Australia and, for that matter, New Zealand and that part of the world? Well, these days it's much easier than it was when I started out. Um, when I started out, uh, I was a volunteer in Western Australia on uh, a number of maritime archaeological excavations um, in the 1970s. And uh, for a long time, I was a volunteer. Um, there were no opportunities to study and there were no opportunities for work, really. Then, in recent years, one of the things that I've been involved in was setting up a maritime archaeology program at Flinders University in South Australia. And so. For students coming through today, you can study maritime archaeology at Flinders University. You can go on and get work in all Australian states um, and other places overseas. So it's changed a lot in 40 years. 
So you were a pioneer in this particular realm of archaeology. So how did you even uh, gain entry into it, and who did you work with, and, and what were your first projects that brought you into the fold? Well, I was extremely lucky. I was at high school in the 1970s, and uh, one of the girls I went to high school with said, oh, you're interested in diving. My brother uh, works at the West Australian Museum. He does maritime archaeology, which I had never heard of, and uh, she introduced me to him. And he said, well, look, we're doing some teaching at the university in Western Australia, just a summer course, not a a degree course, but a short uh, 12-lecture series over the summer, why don't you come along and find out what maritime archaeology is about? And so as a 17-year-old, I wandered along, and as a result of that, they formed um, an amateur group, an avocational group of people who were interested in underwater archaeology and who would have the opportunity to be volunteers on the project. And so while I was a student um, doing my undergraduate degree, I was a volunteer for the museum in Western Australia on the James Matthews excavation, which was one of the pioneer excavations in in Australia in the 1970s. And I also worked on Batavia uh, and Zeewick, which were two of the Dutch East India Company ships that were wrecked in Australian waters, and and they were also excavated in the 1970s. And so I got a lot of uh, fieldwork experience, which was a great opportunity. But really there was nowhere to go, and it wasn't until the beginning of the 1980s that uh, opportunities came up to actually study maritime archaeology, get qualified in it, and therefore to start working it, which I did in 1982. So there were really no degree programs in maritime archaeology per se. Did you matriculate into a program of anthropology or general archaeology? How did that work, and what was your training like? Uh, My training was actually in marine biology, (laughs) and history, and I went to a university which had a very broad program, which allowed me to study history, which was um, a good basis for the kind of archaeology that we do in Australia, but also to study maritime um, marine archaeology, which enabled, uh, marine biology, which enabled me to get some experience working underwater um, and studying underwater science um, at university, and so I kind of put this very strange degree together um, and then went on from there. So this goes back to the days when you actually cobbled together a, a sort of a trajectory and you actually sort of had to work in tandem with the department to make sure that it was recognized. So that really was kind of a pioneering situation. I imagine that by now they have formal programs and uh, one can go into graduate school or even undergraduate school and start, start in on maritime archaeology. Very much so. I mean, we at Flinders University introduced undergraduate studies in maritime archaeology um, back in 1996-97, and uh, that was the first time you were able to study maritime archaeology in Australia at undergraduate level. And then in 2002, we introduced a graduate program, which is now the biggest um, graduate program in maritime archaeology in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, And, of course, I left Flinders a couple of years ago, but uh, the program goes from strength to strength. How would you compare the programs in Australia with, uh, say, the ones in North America or in other parts of the world, and and where is some of the cutting-edge research being undertaken? Oh, there are some very good programs around the world, and we built um, and designed our program on a program at uh, the University of Southampton where some of my colleagues do fantastic work in maritime archaeology. 
uh, Lucy Blue and John Anderson were there. So there's a lot of work done in Europe. Uh, there's a very good program in southern Denmark, for example, which uh, Tice Marlevelt runs. Um, and then there are the programs in North America. Um, the two best in, in North America that I'm very familiar with are the program at East Carolina University in right. North Carolina and the program at Texas A&M University right? um, where uh, people like uh, Cheryl uh, Ward worked uh, and did their graduate studies. So, yeah, um, yeah it's uh, yeah. very good work in, in the U.S. Cheryl Ward was on the program two weeks ago, so we had her discuss the reconstruction of the Egyptian ship that, that, that she was involved in. Um, and that seems to really take maritime archaeology to a whole new level. Um, if I were to ask you what kind of techniques are done, used at this point, uh, say for initial exploration of uh, maritime resources, and then how do excavations proceed, what can you tell me about that? I think the big things that have changed in recent years have been some of the computing and high technology equipment end, which has become much cheaper, much more widely available. So things like multi-beam sonar have made working on, on sites uh, a whole lot easier. Um, and some of the high-end equipment like remote-operated vehicles um, and underwater video, which can go down much deeper than, than divers can work, um, which allow people to at least see sites and in some cases survey sites um, they are kind of the really top-end um, advances which have been happening in maritime archaeology in recent years. For example, here in Australia a few years ago, uh, people discovered the site of HMAS Sydney, which sank in the Second World War. It's quite recent, but it's in very, very deep water, and that was something that would have been difficult until relatively recent times. Uh, that kind of equipment was extremely expensive until recent years. We're going to take a break for a few seconds, for about a minute, and uh, we will be back with Dr. Mark Staniforth uh, in, after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. 
The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to a new view of life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life, which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A new view of life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Joe Shulton Ryan. We're back with a special program on maritime archaeologies, and specifically in the South Pacific and off of the coast of Australia. And my special guest is Dr. Mark Spaniforth, who has uh, witnessed and been part of the evolution of contemporary maritime archaeology in that part of the world, and even more broadly.、Um, one of the elements. That I think is relevant to almost all of us who do archaeology is the whole issue of climate change and the fact that because of hurricanes, tsunamis, and catastrophic offshore events, archaeological sites tend to get exposed. And in addition to all the chaos that does ensue and the restoration efforts that have to be made along shorelines, archaeological sites are exposed and variously destroyed as a result of these events. Um, Dr. Staniforth is involved in a project called the Clarence, the Clarence Project, which has some bearing on these issues. And、uh, Dr. Staniforth, if you would, wouldn't mind, talk to us a little bit about the Clarence Project and its impact and potential ramifications for future maritime archaeology. Okay, Clarence Project is really important because what it's doing is it is developing a protocol for rapid recovery. Um, documentation and then reburial of material、uh, on the seabed, and that is being done essentially because we can't examine, excavate every single shipwreck that we find on the seabed. There are thousands of them, and so if we want to do more excavation, and one of the problems over the last twenty or thirty years has been lack of funding for excavation of,、uh, of shipwreck sites. If we want to do more excavation, one of the things we need to、um, fix is the problem of conservation of material. And conservation is extremely time-intensive and very expensive, and it's simply not possible to do. And so, what we've developed on the Clarence project is the protocol where we raise material to the surface, we record it in so many different kinds of ways which weren't available to us, say, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago.、Um, And then, once having recorded it, we have a, a record of this material. Then we replace it, we rebury it, either on the site or next to the site, so that if, by any chance, we want to look at part or all of that material in the future, we can go back and, and raise it. 
Um, and if not, it can simply sit there without costing a lot of money for conservation treatment. Essentially, it's the development of an underwater repository for uh, archaeological materials, and that will allow us to do a lot more excavation than we've done in recent years. So how did you put this to work on the Clarence Project? Well, Clarence was chosen because we had baseline data for that particular site, which dates back to the 1980s when I was actually working as the state maritime archaeologist for the state of Victoria here. Um, and we did some work on the Clarence and we did some baseline recording. So we have um, information about what Clarence was like in the mid-1980s and we didn't have too many other sites in Australia where we had that kind of baseline information. And the second thing was that we were interested in picking up a site where we could do some useful archaeology as well. And my particular interest in the current site is that it's an Australian-built ship, and I'm interested in Australian shipbuilding in the earliest days. We're interested in adaptation to the environment because when people come to Australia, they know how to build ships, but they don't know as much about timbers that are available, they don't know much about local conditions in Australia, and therefore they have to adapt what they do know to the local environment and to the indigenous timbers that are available to them. Um, and that was something else that we were interested in doing. And Clarence is Australian-built, uh, built in New South Wales in 1841, um, and therefore was a, a good candidate for doing this work. So we chose the Clarence for a couple of reasons, um, and it's enabled us to, to do this work. And you mentioned that it was built in 1841. I would imagine it was one of the earliest ships uh, constructed in Australia. Is that not true, or is it? Um, there's earlier ships uh, constructed in Australia. Uh, shipbuilding gets off the ground in the early 1800s in Australia, but um, it's certainly one of the earliest uh, that have been discovered to date. Um, the thing about early shipbuilding in Australia is that those ships tended to go all sorts of places. They went to New Zealand, they went to the sub-Antarctic Islands, and they were lost in places like that. And, of course, we have not found those particular sites. Um, so there are not very many shipwrecks from the period before about 1850, and Clarence is one of very few. And how, do, how was it originally discovered? Oh, well, we've discovered um, things like what sorts of timbers are being used for... Um, shipbuilding at the time and there are all sorts of myths in the history about um, the use of certain kinds of timbers. So the tin vessels built in New South Wales for example are assumed to have been built out of red cedar because it was the, the best timber for building ships and when we look at the site like the Clarence of course what we find is that despite having been built in an area which was very big in the red cedar trade it had not a piece of red cedar on it. And the reason for that, of course, is that red cedar is simply too valuable a timber for right. um, using on ships. And therefore, they've used other timbers, which they have discovered work well enough for their purposes without using this fairly uh, valuable timber, red cedar. We also find similar kinds of things happening in Tasmania, where hewn pine was supposedly the best sort of timber you could use for ships. But again, it was too expensive. It was much better to be using human pine to build furniture out of because furniture was was much more valuable product than simply a, a vessel. And so when the wreck was discovered, what were the initial recoveries 
on the on the wreck, what kind of um, material came up to the surface, and what was processed, and what did you find about the ship that uh, allowed you to sort of reconstruct its history? Well, um, we did some work, limited work, in the 1980s, and a lot of that was more about documenting sediment levels on the site, documenting the biology of the site, documenting what was visible above the seabed level. There were a small number of artefacts which came up, but um, the main things that we learned in the 1980s was what the site looks like and what limited amounts of information about what the site was was made from. Um, Now, we stopped excavation in the 1980s essentially because we had this conservation problem and that was that when we did start excavating, what we came up with was a lot of very fragile material which would have required tens of thousands of dollars worth of conservation um, equipment, time and, and people resources in order to preserve. And so what we decided to do was essentially to... Um, stop the excavation and leave it until we could either afford the conservation costs or, in this case, where we could afford to do this new process of rapid recovery, uh, documentation and then reburial, um, which is our answer to some, a problem that we had essentially back in the mid-1980s. So it's it's sort of analogous to the situation that we have here in North America, sort of leaving the past for the future or the present for the future to some degree when we get either the funding or develop the technology that allows us to recover these materials in a situation where it's less exposed to destruction. I think you guys are doing the same thing, right? Essentially, that's the, that's, that's the case. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to preserve in situ uh, sites for the future so that when archaeologists can afford to do this work, they will be able to have sites, and all of those sites won't have been destroyed either by human interference or by what you were suggesting before, which is that we in Australia have the same kind of evidence of rising sea level, which is destroying a lot of the sites along the um, the coast. And there's a lot of ships that were wrecked um, and they're lying on beaches and as the sand erosion sort of comes along, they get exposed and and damaged and destroyed Um, and that really is a problem and we can't record them fast enough before they get destroyed. Now let me ask you another question. I, I think your trends in Australia are somewhat parallel to what we have. Effectively, most of the work that's done in most aspects of archaeology here in North America are related to cultural resources or heritage management, and we're no longer doing as much work that is effectively research for research's sake. Is that trend continuing in Australia generally and in maritime archaeology in Australia in particular? Very much so. Um, I guess the high point for work was um, for research work was probably the 1970s and 1980s when I got into this game. Um, there was a lot of excavation went on in underwater archaeology in Australia in that sort of period. Um, that has steadily declined um, for cultural heritage preservation reasons on the one hand, but also for the kind of reasons that I was talking about before, which is simply we don't have the funding in a, a available in order to do this kind of work. Um, And that really has been a problem in in the last 10 to 20 years as that uh, amount of research um, has gone down 
the amount of research funding has dropped, and that's why we were quite pleased with the Clarence Project, because it had the backing of all the states and territories and the federal government. It was able to get a large grant from the Australian Research Council, which enabled us to do this work, and that's something that hasn't happened in maritime archaeology in Australia until the last couple of years um, for two decades. What about training programs for students here in North America? There has been a sort of, uh, over the period of, say, since the 1970s, there has been a trend that witnessed opposition to cultural heritage work, if you will, and then that sort of mellowed into acceptance of that trend in the university communities I'm talking about. And now, uh, basically, there's no alternative other than to place an emphasis on cultural heritage um, and to train students in that direction because that is the way of the future. Are you seeing a parallel situation in Australia? Very much so. Um, and I guess for me, I was very sympathetic to it anyway because I'd had a period of working as a state maritime archaeologist, so I'd been an underwater cultural heritage manager for a state government. Then I'd worked for a period as a curator in a museum, and that really gave me an insight into some of the issues involved in trying to look after large assemblages of archaeological materials, um, the conservation issues that are involved in that, um, and also, you know, the need to try and do something about such a wide range of, of sites, um, not just shipwreck sites, but a whole range of other underwater cultural heritage sites. Um, here in Australia, we have indigenous sites underwater, which uh, the indigenous people have been in Australia for 50,000 years. Um, and we know in some places that there are indigenous sites underwater and, and they need study and they need, um, they need preservation as well. And those are the kinds of issues that you, you face when there's not enough money really to do justice to these kinds of sites. Um, and the concentration in teaching then falls to teaching people how to manage those kinds of sites um, simply because the funding is not available to do major research. So you do have a, a redirection in the university system as well with uh, professors and educators starting to at least trend towards a more applied venue than they were in the past, which was a purely an academic scenario. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, there's the people who resist that, as you know, even today um, and, you know, take a very research focus. But um, in a practical sense, we know working in universities that, anything between 60 and 90% of our students are going to end up working for government, for consultancy companies, for museums. They are not going to go on and work as a researcher, either for a university or for any other kind of organisation. Um, and that means we have to train what people are going to be able to do as a vocation, as a job for themselves. And so certainly the program we ran in uh, in Flinders University, we've got a lot of students from America, from particularly Canada, um, and other places coming to Australia for an opportunity to see how, I suppose, we do it here in Australia um, and take that knowledge back to, to their own countries. And so even the sophisticated techniques that you undertook in the Clarence Project, those, I assume, are still being taught and, and uh, researchers as well as practical application people are learning exactly what the, uh, the detailed elements of, of the training is all about 
And then you, you then have an informed regulatory group of people that can assess how this work is done and make sure that it's done efficiently. So you have sort of a new consciousness. We have that certainly here in the States where we now have a wave of regulators and people in, in uh, preservation roles who are familiar with the latest techniques and can assess the work properly and, and have a vision of, of what cultural heritage is and, and how the resources relate to, to the promotion of, of heritage and, and that industry in the future. And you're saying they're doing the same thing in Australia. Probably, uh, They probably have more money for that than we do. I don't know. Mm, not sure we have more money, but um, certainly we we're doing that. we have a good collaborative relationship with the various regulator authorities. But I mean, it is a question of checks and balances, and you do need to have people overseeing uh, researchers. Researchers don't have the right to simply go and do whatever it is that they want to do, um, with no thought to the long-term preservation, protection of sites, and so. I think that checks and balance system, we've got pretty well down pat here in Australia. We've been doing it now since the mid-1970s, and so um, we've got a pretty good idea of how it works. So I think that is the new wave, and, and, and the wave is to uh, basically be very careful about what you recover, be careful about what you preserve, and, and try to put the equal weight on both elements of it because you have to save some of it for the future, and like you say, there just aren't the funds for it. Does the government provide a certain amount of funding in a variety of venues? Is it on the national level, the state level, the municipal level? How does that work? Well, in Australia, we've always had a situation where it's split responsibility between state and federal. So there are parts of the underwater heritage which are um, regulated by the states. Um, and they have to put some funding into into looking after their underwater cultural heritage. Um, and then there are other parts of the underwater cultural heritage which are regulated by the federal government, and they put a, a certain amount of money into it. The real problem is that when you come down to it, the federal government doesn't put any more money into uh, maritime archaeology in Australia today than it did when I was working as an underwater cultural heritage manager and I finished work in underwater cultural heritage management in 1987. So we're talking 25 years ago. The funding has not gone up since then. And that really is a concern because, as you can imagine, um, a few hundred thousand dollars 25 years ago was worth a lot more than a few hundred thousand dollars today. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that really is, is the problem. And uh, is there a infrastructure for maritime archaeologists within the government program? I mean, is there a state maritime archaeologist? Yeah, very much. Um, each of the states has some kind of program, and uh, the program I ran here in Victoria um, is still running 25 years later, and it has three or four people, it has a boat, it has office space, it has lab space, it has storage for artefacts, um, all those sorts of things. So there is infrastructure in each of the Australian states and territories. In some cases, the infrastructure and human resources are quite substantial, that's quite, uh, quite good. In other states, it might be a one-person band. It's one person with very little equipment. Um, the good thing, though, in Australia is that, generally speaking, it's a very collaborative and cooperative um, environment. So 
that tends to happen is that most people studied together, they've worked together over the years, and therefore collaborative projects are able to be done between universities and government agencies and museums and volunteers, avocational groups, so that you can do things in those states where there might only be one person. And I assume some of the work is also done by consulting groups. A small amount of work is done by consulting groups here in Australia, um, and that is, I think, one area where Australia lags behind some of the areas uh, like that in, say, the UK and in the US, because I think there are a number of states which don't do enough uh, consulting work ahead of development. Um, and essentially what that means is that people are developing marinas, they are dredging, doing all sorts of things along the coast and in the water which impact on underwater cultural heritage, but there is no survey work, there is no excavation work done ahead of that development and therefore over the years I've seen a lot of destruction. And that's extremely disappointing because that situation is very variable um, between one state and another. So in some states, they do very good work. In other states, they do almost nothing. Um, and that makes running a consultancy company on a national basis in Australia in underwater archaeology extremely difficult. And for many years, people have hung around on the fringes of it but not really made a living doing that kind of work. In recent years, a couple of people are starting to, to be able to do that, but it's, uh, it's been a really hard road to hire that one. And slow going, I guess, as well, right? Yeah, extremely slow going. And again, it's all about government um, taking responsibility to control activities and, and not just saying, well, look, you know, you're doing us a favour by developing this marina and therefore we're just going to let you do whatever you like. And if you happen to suck up a few shipwrecks, well, we'll just close our eyes and pretend it didn't happen. And that kind of view is, is not good. And we'll be back with uh, Dr. Mark Stemforth after these words. Stay tuned. We're coming right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Michelle Kaur, Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Back with our very special program on maritime archaeology in Australia and the South Pacific, and we have the pleasure of speaking with one of the experts and pioneers in the field of uh, maritime archaeology in that part of the world, uh, Dr. Mark Staniforth. Um, we have discussed in some detail the uh, parallel trends in preservation and cultural heritage management for maritime archaeological resources in North America, in the United States, and in Australia. But Dr. Staniforth has also done very extensive work in Vietnam. And to those of us of a certain age here in the United States, that seems like a very unique, almost surreal um, situation because Vietnam was such a very major part of uh, American, the American political landscape when those of us of this certain age, and I'm dating myself here, were in school and uh, or a major war was raging in that part of the world. And now all of a sudden uh, I'm seeing certainly in the archaeological literature that work in Vietnam and especially maritime work in Vietnam has uh, taken over some of the headlines. So, Dr. Staniforth, tell us about uh, maritime archaeology in Vietnam and how it developed. Well, as you mentioned, I mean, Vietnam was about the last place I wanted to go to as a teenager. <laughs> right. um, so it's really changed a lot in recent years. Um, I suppose one of the problems that they had in Vietnam was, was an aftermath of the war was that they didn't have a lot of friends um, in the world in the 1970s and then to the 1980s. And it was a very closed society, and therefore there wasn't much in the way of scuba diving. Very few people were interfering with flights in Vietnam. Um, about the only people that they worked with at that stage were the Russians. Um, and um, that started to change, I suppose, 20 years ago um, as the place started to open up both economically and, and culturally and, and to welcome people from a variety of other places rather than just their um, Russian friends. So I suppose it's been 20 years and we started work there back in 2008 um, when we were asked to come and assess a couple of anchors which had been found in the Red River near Hanoi um, and give them an idea if these things were old or relatively recent, and they turned out to be 18th century wooden anchors, which were quite interesting in themselves, but they weren't what the Vietnamese uh, who had control of them had hoped they might be, and that was essentially, they were interested in 
one event in Vietnamese history, and that is the invasion by Kublai Khan in 1288, um, which was defeated by the Vietnamese people. And when you go to Vietnam and you start to understand the culture there, what you understand is that the Vietnamese people build their entire identity on resistance to invasion. And the big enemy has always been China, and certainly in the 13th century, it was Kublai Khan and the Mongol uh, invasions of, of Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, Kublai Khan sent a huge um, army and fleet to uh, Vietnam. They sacked the capital. Um, and then when they were attempting to withdraw, they were ambushed effectively by the Vietnamese. They put stakes into the water and they um, tangled the... The, uh, the Chinese ships up with those wooden stakes um, and they sank a lot of them, burnt some of them. Uh, so there's a huge defeat for the Mongol uh, invasion and, and that's a very important event in Vietnamese history and it's still very much celebrated in the area where this battle took place, which is a place called Bac Dang, which is uh, a couple of hours out of Hanoi. And we went to the site to see if there was anything remaining of the battlefield. And uh, the Vietnamese had been working on this site since the 1950s. And one of the nice things about this project is that it is very much um, a Vietnamese project. It is run by the Institute of Archaeology in Hanoi. Um, and they consider it a really important thing. And they've been doing it now for 60 years. Um, and we were fortunate enough to get in contact with Dr. Lucy Nguyen, and she has been working on the battlefield site since the mid-1980s. And essentially, we talked to her, and she agreed to allow us this, to help with various things which are not available to the Institute of Archaeology uh, in Hanoi. Um, they don't have... When we say there's a lack of funding in the West for archaeology... Um, there's a desperate lack of funding in Vietnam for archaeology. There really is very little funding at all. And there is certainly no high-technology equipment, the sort of equipment that we're used, becoming used to dealing with um, in maritime archaeology in Australia and the US. simply has never been seen in Vietnam. And so for the last few years, what we've been doing is getting colleagues and friends and uh, co-workers to come along, bring equipment to Vietnam, and actually run that equipment in the field to look for some of the Chinese vessels that were wrecked um, at the time of the battle in 1288, and also another battlefield site at Van Don um, out in the islands near Halong Bay. Um, and we've taken side scan sonar and radiometry equipment and a whole range of, of gear over there. We've been teaching the archaeologists at the Institute of Archaeology how to use this equipment and we've been trying to get them more aware of the kind of um, heritage that they have underwater because being underwater, it's been very much out of sight, out of mind um, because there's no scuba diving that happens in that part of Vietnam. It's almost inaccessible for them. So there can only be a few meters of water on it. They can't see it. They can't get to it. Um, and therefore, it's been protected and... and uh, that's starting to change because um, throughout Southeast Asia, scuba diving has become big business and it's got into Vietnam in the last 10 years or so 
and it's growing massively. Every year you get new dive shops opening, new areas opening for scuba diving. And what starts to happen is that sites get found. And if there's no regulation, there is no archaeologists working in this field in Vietnam, the material starts to be picked up and simply taken or sold. Um, and so there's still quite a trade in antiquities in the antique shops in the big cities like Hanoi. So you can go and buy material from shipwreck sites, which has made its way into the antiques market. Um, and what we're trying to do is help the Vietnamese to do something about that. So again, you're, you know, this is, is such a familiar story, a country that has a heritage of turmoil and sort of trying to build itself back up and and it's sort of bridging a sort of a nationalistic fervor with uh, with archaeology because that's what sort of get, brings them back to a, a, a time when when uh, when the culture was thriving and and they sort of exhibited their their tenacity against the opponents and uh, that sort of propels the archaeology to go ahead and they've kind of invited you probably Australia because you're so close and because uh, geographically certainly on a relative basis and you can go ahead and, and help them with that I'm wondering if on that background against that background are you doing any interfacing with the universities or with the students and the government of Vietnam other than getting permits but but actually sort of teaching them what underwater archaeology is all about and, and how has that been received? Very much so. I mean this is a very collaborative project and it's not just Australians which is interesting. We uh, are partnering with the Institute of Nautical Archaeology at Texas A&M University and a couple of the research associates from Texas A&M come along on the trip as well. So part of our funding has been through INA. Um, we've had American and Canadian involvement in the project. We've had students from America come along. In terms of our involvement on the ground in Vietnam, this last trip uh, in November 2012, we have introduced something called Nautical Archaeology Society training into Vietnam. And uh, what we did was we ran three days of training in Hanoi um, and we had students from several universities come along and we taught some of the staff from the Institute of Archaeology. Um, we had 34 people have that training, which is starting to make a difference. One of the, my big projects over the next few years will be to try and get support and funding to allow us to take Nautical Archaeology Society training to other places in Vietnam because we can do it at the moment because we're there every year. We're always in Hanoi. We can do it in Hanoi. But if we want to take it to... Um, da Nang and uh, Ho Chi Minh City and, and other places in Vietnam, we need a little bit of funding. And so one of the projects which is really difficult to get funding for is this kind of training project and capacity building projects and awareness raising projects because quite often we've been able to get grant funding for our research and that's why the research goes on every year and we've been going back now for five years um, and we're able to fund that but the real problem we're having is trying to find money to enable us to essentially increase awareness um, and do some capacity building to, to really help these people to know what maritime archaeology is about and eventually hopefully get some of those students um, out of Vietnam and into programs in other countries so that they can learn how other people do it. 
one of the big steps forward was the last day before we left, um, we had a meeting with the director of the Institute of Archaeology, and he's agreed to have two staff involved in an underwater archaeology unit um, from now on. And that's a real step forward um, for the Institute because they've got no trained people at the moment, but at least they have a couple of people who they have said are going to be trained. They're going to have time to work on underwater archaeology um, over the next few years. And so it will expand the Institute's involvement beyond just our contact, Dr. Lien, um, who has been, is great, um, but she's not an underwater archaeologist. She's interested in, in terrestrial archaeology and in, in the work that we do in the rice paddies in, in Bakdang. Um, rather than the underwater component of it. And so we're looking for some of the younger people, the students and the young staff members at OEA, who can then get trained in this so that it has an ongoing capacity of its own to do this kind of work uh, for the next 50 years. We just have another minute, but uh, Dr. Stanislaw, where do you see uh, maritime archaeology going in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, what I'm hoping is that um, it will become better established at the universities uh, all around the world. I mean, one of its problems has always been that it is somewhat marginalised um, and it hasn't got itself well enough established in essentially every anthropology or in the British system, Australian system, every archaeology department should have an underwater archaeologist or a maritime archaeologist. Now, that hasn't happened. And that's been one of the great disappointments because I think underwater archaeology can teach students some really useful skills. Even when they're not going to go on to be underwater archaeologists, it can teach them a lot about trade networks and um, migration processes and, and technology in the past because these were complex, um, you know, structures. Um, and all those sorts of things can be taught through maritime archaeology at universities, but there has been a resistance um, at, in the big anthropology and archaeology departments at many universities to getting underwater archaeology going in their department because it's seen as expensive. And if we can make it less expensive, then we can say to people, well, look, you know, now there's no excuse. Now you really need to have at least one underwater archaeologist on your, on your faculty. You can teach students. Um, you don't have to run a program as such, you don't have to produce underwater archaeologists, but you can at least have an involvement in it. And that enables much, much more research to be done. Um, and instead of having one program here in Australia, we would have underwater archaeologists at 35, 36 universities in Australia. Um, and that would make an enormous difference. Ironically, this is uh, this is sort of my final observation on this as well. The uh, the catastrophes, the hurricanes, and and the storm events that we're seeing, I think, all over the world, that may ironically promote uh, the application of maritime archaeology in the future. And and uh, while we certainly don't hope for the continuation of such events, certainly one of the the byproducts of that might be more uh, maritime archaeology. And at this point, I want to thank you, Dr. Staniforth, for participating in the program. We're going to have to bid everyone farewell, and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody to uh, speaking with all of you next time. And Dr. Staniforth, thank you so much for participating. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity, Joe. Okay. Good evening. 
again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.